This is Being Your Human. I'm your host, Richard Aston Philippe Guenet, a uh, driver right. of uh, <laughs> thank you, a driver of uh, digital change uh, amongst organisations, and a and a consultant, uh, which is a word we could come to. Uh, welcome to Being Human. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Oh, no. Very much a pleasure to be here. Great. So yeah, let's start with that strange, uh, strange word, uh, co-shultant. So well, yeah, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still getting it wrong. Yeah. What do you mean by that one? That's interesting. Uh, yeah, people sound like they're having a, a cold when they're sneezing. But I think there's a big change in the industry, um, both in the agile world uh, and those, those sort of agile transformation where. Um, coaches are being brought along as kind of consultants uh, and standing between the leadership and the teams um, and, and delivering somehow solutions to clients. And I think clients now need to, uh, to, to be more sort of in charge of their own destiny. And of course they need help, and, and, but the role of the, the help is not to do it for them. The role of the help is to actually facilitate them to go through that. And it's, it's a very subtle, maybe, sort of distinction. But on the other hand, it's fundamental in, in between success and, and, and what we see out there at the moment. Okay. So I think, um, to, to summarize it in one word, Coach Hultant is is about true coaching uh, around facilitating the client, you know, to come up with their own answers, to 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 make the change happen inside their four walls, and and understand what is the resistance and work through it inside their four walls. Uh, at the same time as helping them understanding, you know, what is digital about, what is agility about, what is you know some techniques around lean and around other techniques and tools that can facilitate them through that process. So it's very much uh, the merge of the two, uh, but the idea that it's not about consulting and pure play consulting, where, where you, you, you come in and you deliver solutions for your clients. Uh, and it's not quite coaching either, because coaching uh, tends to be in a, with very limited agenda or no agenda. The agenda is the one of the client, really. Um, and and you facilitate, it's a pure facilitation, the systemic coaching. Uh, but sometimes you need you need to help with some insight and input uh, for for the the clients to 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 learn something as part of the process. Yeah. Right, because sometimes I think coaching gets considered to be uh, or pure coaching is kind of content free. The coach is just yeah, yeah. there to, to allow something to emerge in you, whereas consultant obviously has content and insight. So you're bringing those emerging those to something. And, and you need to be careful because there is a reason and a very valid reason why coaching uh, should be content-free is uh, because you're enabling the revealing of those things into the team. And in systemic coaching, you think, I mean, the starting point is the team is fundamentally intelligent and creative. So all the solutions are in there. You just have to emerge them, right? Uh, but sometimes, yes, it, it does help. It does help to uh, to bring to bring a little bit of input. Uh, but you need to be very careful how you do that. And and that's where I think uh, we're defining a new a new type of role, a new type of thing uh, that is captured through the word consultant. 
Oh, okay, right. And and you, the other term you dropped there is systemic coaching. So for people listening, they may wonder what that's about. You pointed me to Orsk, which um, yes. like first Sorry. when I heard you say that, I thought you said Orcs, which is a sort of small type of puffin. But I guess that <laughs> <laughs> wasn't what you were referring to. It's an acronym. And that's an example of systemic coaching, right? Could you talk us through that a bit? So it stands for Organization and Relationship System Coaching. Right. And, and I think we are exploring even beyond gotcha. that, the systemic management. So, so the idea is that you are looking at a team as an entity. And out, out of the team, you know, the, the, the sum of all the individuals of the team add up to an, a new entity that is the entity of the team. And this entity of the team, that's what you coach. You coach the entity. You don't, you don't coach the individuals. You don't coach social relationship between them. You coach the team. And it's, it's an awkward sort of setup to think about. But sometimes, and it, and it comes, and it works as well with couple. And if you take the idea of a married couple, the couple becomes its own entity. There were two individuals coming together, and there's an entity created between them that, that bounds them. And that's what systemic coaching is about, is, is about this entity that bounds them. And it's true with teams. Equally in, in organization, it's absolutely true with teams. Uh, and, and actually, systemic coaching works for both. Um, so the, the starting point is really to think this, this team, this entity, as, as wisdom, as knowledge, and creative. And to reveal things to that system. So maybe the system is in crisis. Maybe the system is seeking for something different, seeking for something new, trying to, uh, to develop themselves. I mean, plenty of things. Maybe they are going through changes and there's edges. And as a system, they may struggle. So it's almost as if you project onto this entity thoughts and feelings and treat it as if it had a persona. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you work with the emotional field. So the idea is, you know, when you work with individuals, you, you address their emotions because their emotions drive actually their behaviors quite a lot. Uh, not everything is rational, of course. And with a team, well, there is a field of emotion with the team. And the, the role of the systemic coach is actually to monitor that field. And, and very often, you know, you present something, you go through something, and you see variation into the field. And the role of the leadership is actually to use this emotional and that context of the emotional field to create a positive atmosphere. So there's plenty of ways to create that sort of atmosphere. Uh, but as you develop the team that way, the team becomes more resilient. The team becomes more autonomous. And mm-hmm. when you think of big agile transformations and of that nature, you know, we are trying to get in the I mean, team that are independent of each other, the two pizza teams and that sort of things, and a flatter hierarchy. Well, you're never going to get a flatter hierarchy if you don't take the teams as autonomous teams, intelligent teams and you let them make decisions. So you have to manage those teams very differently. And so far, you know, most management has been built around managing tasks, 
or managing individuals through tasks. And it's a very different thing to say, no, no, you manage yourself, you manage the task, the task of your problem. And, and we're gonna manage you towards the intent, we're gonna you know, build you as a team, and as a team, things will emerge from you. Very, right. very different way of managing. And when I hear it, one of my reactions is, well, doesn't this sound a bit delusional? Like we're creating some fish, fictitious entity and then trying to engage with it. It's sort of, on its face, it sounds weird and, and delusional. <laughs> it, it's not. It's not. The thing is, we're not creating the entity. The entity is there. And it may not be working very well. Very often, you know, you, you walk into a team that individuals a team. So to to get to be a team, and, and you know the beauty, look at a, you know a Formula One tire change. Those guys, they know what the goal is. You know, they want to put their drivers back on the track as soon as possible. They work an, as an as a beautifully harmonized, coordinated team. You need a special spirit for that. You know, they are at one with the driver, all those things, and they all trust each other implicitly. How do you build that? It's not fluff, and it's very necessary. And incidentally, when you do that, you get a much more positive atmosphere. People go to work feeling they can make a difference, feeling what they say matters because all the voices of the team matters. And, and if people are, are being sort of negative and so on, it's a voice of the system that is trying to express itself. And maybe that's the person that is taking the voice in the system and the system of, of the work, the system of the team is in a bad place. And okay. that voice can be thanked to say, well, actually you're revealing this to the system. So you, you adopt a very, very different attitude and approach to, to how you work, but the team sort of look after each other and suddenly you have a more autonomous team. And that is not fluff, that is necessary. Okay. And, and so, if we, okay, so if we take that perspective, are we then saying that there's never a situation where an individual is a bad actor and the individual requires some level of intervention? You know, there might be, but let's say if you have a, a cynic in the team and really that guy is a pain, you remove him eventually or her. Another voice is going to come out. Somebody else is going to take that role because the team needs a devil's advocate. So, you know, putting it on the individual and yes, sometimes you, know, you have people that can't work in teams and so on, and that needs to be addressed, but you're not necessarily going to address the individual first. You're going to first thinking, actually, this is a voice in the system, and the system finds its balance currently with that voice in. Now, can we turn things around to make it a more positive atmosphere? Uh, and you have techniques for that. I can, I can get into this. Um, and, and once you do, you know, you, you kind of turn those voices around because they just want to be heard. And, and it comes out negative. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you will have people that come out very negative saying, oh, we can do this, we can do that. 
And actually, you know, people make big plans that on the basis that you can, and, and then you come to it and no, you couldn't. And there was some, some DevOps or some practices or some systems that was too flaky to make it happen. And those people were right, but they were not heard and they were shut off. Okay. So I think you, you need to take a, a view that also people mean good. People turn up to work, meaning, you know, the good and, you know, Deming has a quote on that around, you know, good people get beaten by a bad system every day. So, you know, the, the, the role of, of the leadership is really to understand those things and balance those things and ensure that we're creating the context in the, for the system and the team to flourish and work. And that's, that's where I've, I've been listening to, to a few of your uh, previous uh, podcasts. And I think there's, we're tiptoeing around the leadership. You know, oh, do we need leaders and we don't need leaders and the teams know well better and so on. We need leaders. We do need leaders, but leaders need to behave in a very different way. They are here to empower the team uh, and, and energize the team and stimulate the team and, and discipline in terms of cadence, not disciplining people, but creating that cadence of making progress. And I think this is where we sort of have a lot, a lot of different voices happening at the moment in industry. I think agile is, it's kind of a lot of people are talking about, oh, we don't need managers anymore, and the teams should know better themselves. There needs to be an energy. There needs to be some element of cadence. There needs to be, you know, a constant sort of. Uh, flow, and I'm not talking sprint here, but we need to actually create a better world out of the work we do, and, and that needs an energy, and it needs, it needs some leadership uh, that, is, you know, that is necessary, I think. Okay. And, and what I'm hearing from you here, though, is that if there's a, if there is, if we accept that there's a role of leader and that, and that individual is, they're, they're, what we're coaching with this systemic uh, coaching technique is for that leader to, in in the first instance, address what might be an issue or potentially an opportunity for for the team rather than for the individual, and and only secondarily consider the individual. Is have I got that right? The the yes, it's the the default position should be to consider the team. You know, and and a lot of people are quoting turn the ship around. For instance, this is about managing by intent, which means the team, you know, sort of raises their resilience, their understanding, their critical spirit, and all those things. In terms of around, if you're not, you know, aware of that reference. It's, it's a reference of the, um, a captain of a boat, uh, submarine, I think, nuclear submarine, where um, he was giving orders and people were just passing the order down. And he was asking something like being on the fifth gear or something like that. And it wasn't the fifth gear. And, and people were just passing the thing around just because that was the order. And then he realized that actually to order a ship like this, people need to, uh, to be critical of those things. And, and they need to get feed, give feedback to him saying, no, no, there's, there's no thing like that. And, and I think you know, that's, that's where you, I mean, the big message beyond that is managing by intent so that you declare the intent to the team the team, you know, thinks about how they're going to achieve this intent, and and if they feel it's impossible, or if they think, you know, the intent was stupid in the first instance, or whatever it is, they they discuss it, and then you you start creating teams that are intelligent. 
And the fundamental thing is you want to have intelligent team because digital needs to evolve more rapidly. You need to be able to experiment more, faster, uh, and, and find your way. And if it has to go up the chain all the time, you slow down. No two, no two ways about it. You slow down. And all the way through, you start getting, you know, sort of vested interest in success and, and budgets and whatever have you. And, and that will actually sort of create bias that doesn't reveal the, the right information from the system and from the ground and, and from whatever the customer feedback is telling us. So the more you can create autonomous team and intelligent teams that way, the more you actually can be true to the agile values of creating a quicker customer feedback and responding quicker to that feedback and trying things. Mm. But interestingly, with Agile, it starts with individuals and interactions, right? It doesn't say, uh, you know, team personality or something. So this almost feels like it could be an evolution of that message. It could be, but on the other hand, you know, I'm, and, and you know me on that, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of Lean and, and to set the record straight. I think a lot of people, when you talk about lean, you know, what I get all the time is, oh, yeah, I know back belt and so on. And that's Six Sigma. That's kind of what happened in the 90s, 2000. And that gave a very bad name to lean. And that's not what I learned you know, by, by, by fluke. When I started to look into lean, I looked into Toyota's production system, Toyota Way. So those original sort of roots of lean. And they were fundamentally different than, than the later iterations. And I think, uh, if, you, if you give me a second, yes. I, I, guess, <laughs> I think initially uh, the, the lean management, the lean leadership was very much systemic managers. They were managing their team. They were stimulating their team to find improvements, let's say. You know, Kaizen was an absolute uh, essential element of lean. Uh, and, and I don't mean, you know, again, when you speak about Kaizen, people are naming PDCA, DMAEC, all those things, A3 thinking. The fundamental core of it is you stimulate people to look for improvements and what can they change tomorrow and settle tomorrow. It's a change for good. It's the, something you don't come back from. And it, it's really looking at those small steps that they can take to make something better and improving every day like that. And that is the stimulation of that was very much the role of the management in, in Toyota way. And I think what we see after that is a lot has been codified. A lot has came out to say, oh, Toyota uses A3 thinking. So we're going to use A3 thinking and, and Kaizen is about A3 thinking or Kaizen is about that process, the mic process. And, here you measure things and you do these things and, and A3, we made a process of it. And for people listening, A3 thinking is an, an approach for problem solving, isn't it? That's been codified out of two. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a template, you know, where you have your problem and, and your solutions and your experiment on, on one sheet of paper. That's, I mean that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. But the fundamental it's not about that piece of paper, it's not about the categories on that piece of paper. It's about the thing the very thing that you are going to think about your work all the time, how to improve your process of work, how to improve the product you're doing. And the people on the ground know best because they're doing that all the time. And, and this is knowledge work. 
the people, you know, how many managers and myself, how long ago did I code Java? Let alone things like Lambda and stuff like that. And, and the reality is you need, you don't know what the best quality is like, and you don't really want to know because the more you're going to know, the more you're going to be in the weeds of it, the more you're going to manage tasks. You need to find a distance to enable those people that know to organize for the best. Mm. And, and that's very much knowledge work. And, and if you think Toyota built their success on, make, on, on doing knowledge work on a production chain, and, and production chain work is relatively dull, you know. And, and what you have is people, you know, they do their task, but what is the motivator is, I'm going to make that better. I'm going to find a better way. I'm going to check quality. I'm going to ensure that the, the product, we find ways of getting better quality out of it. And that's what is fundamentally different between you know, being Toyota or adopting an A3 template and a DMAIC process and so on. Because people start following the codified version, they forgot what was the culture to start with. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm saying that is uh, because I, I received a lot of critiques around people thinking about Lean as, as being that codified process. But also learning how we came to that with Lean in, in you know, 30, 40 years is what's happening today with Agile, much faster. Right. What we're seeing today with Agile is we codifying the process of doing Agile. We're codifying Scrum. You know, Scrum is a codification version of the Agile Manifesto. And then, oh, there's problems to scale because it doesn't work in the enterprise. And we're a big enterprise. We need to do Agile on a large scale. Okay, scaled Agile. We codify that process again. And, and you're talking hundreds of pages, right? And there's multiple frameworks as well, but we codify again. And now we are sort of going onto the enterprise framework and, and looking a bit beyond the IT. And, and we have Agile HR. We have plenty of very good stuff. But we're also seeing that some certification authority or training or whatever they, they call themselves or actually codifying a lot of that and trying to codify it out of that in courses. And so we, we're getting basically a process of codification all the time, which commoditize those things. And there is nothing commodity about change. <laughs> those, those are all good, interesting points, but you need to go back to you know, how do we make change happen? And very often it's, it's human, human first. <laughs> and, and I think that's where things like this don't get codified. And, and you need to go really much under the, the skin of what was the culture that was enabling that. And now do you get to drive that sort of culture? Uh, and it's very difficult, very difficult. And it's something that you may learn in many places but eventually you have to find your own way in your place. And, okay. and that's where it's very custom and, and that's where it calls for a different approach. Okay. Okay, so that's interesting. So if, uh, and because you, you pointed me to Kazen, but also to, to Orskan. So is there something new that's, that's more revel, relevant in the, in the Orsk work for, for digital work that doesn't exist in the sort of Toyota philosophy? Is, is, is that true? Or? 
I'm trying to find out. I'm, I'm learning more and more about it. I, I, don't, I haven't necessarily found it out yet. I think ORSC uh, is it's not quite codification. It's, it's giving you some exercise and some skills, and, and you learn for a long time, you know, almost like a Jedi to run emo, read the emotional field, I think. Uh, but it's, those things can't be rushed. So it's a, it's a long process to, to try and learn, and, 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 and we are an apprentice, really, um, to, to learn how to work with this and learn how to coach it. So the important thing is to pass it on to people so that uh, they, they make it part of their day-to-day -day management um, and work with teams to achieve that. Um, Toyota was probably one of, of the, the enterprises that implemented that as part of the management from day one. They, they were somehow born with it, and there's reasons for that. Uh, you know, the scarcity of materials in the post-war Japan was very much destroyed, and they had to, you know, they were stuck. They had to sell what they made. They couldn't have stocks. They couldn't have inventory. So, so they created the one-piece flow over time. So that, and, and, and if you think, you know, the U.S. was a lot more wealthy, and they would actually have stock. They could afford stock. But Toyota, in doing that, invented a new way of you know, sort of production efficiency, in a sense. And that enabled uh, variety, because the, the thing when you have stock, variety is a bit of a problem. Uh, and, and once you can do one-piece flow, then you can start building a car that is of the color the client is asking for. You can start having multiple options. You can start having a lot of things like that. So I think they, they, they were born with it, and, and it kind of it's an implementation of a, of a systemic way of managing people, uh, very deeply embedded in the culture. Um, and you know, ORS as probably a wider perspective. Uh, but on the other hand, you can look at Toyota as, a, as an implementation of that sort of, uh, that sort of thinking. Right. And I, I don't think they knew of each other, by the way, or that one derives from the other, but uh, both, both ended up with good things, I believe. Right, right. Um, one of the sort of parallels that I somehow detected was, was in the Orsk um, thinking, there's this idea of toxins, right, within the team. Yes, and yes. that how somehow sent felt like a parallel with Muda, right? Which isn't which isn't working in terms of toxins in the team. It's thinking more about you know waste in the in the system. But but somehow yeah. this idea that we're we're working with sort of light and dark, and our job is to to reduce our, our quotient of darkness in order to to expand the light. Something like that seemed to be foundational in both. So the, yes. That's, I'm glad you put you point that out because that's the point I said I would go back to. Um, toxins is an interesting thing, um, in the sense that you have simple toxins, so you have contempt, blame, and criticism. Really, uh, stonewalling and defensiveness. Those are the main core toxins, and and they work in any relationship system. You know, in in a relationship system of a couple, the same toxins apply. And, and if you think, and you know, I see that in IT a lot, if you remove the possibility of putting blame on people, 
and being defensive about it, what progress can you make? There's no hiding place anymore. And it's only the power of, okay, we've got that problem, let's get it sorted. And, and I think, and, and then you, you sort of create, you know, you make people aware of that and, and, and you create a bit of a protocol to understand, okay, for those type of toxin, how do we react? How do we avoid them? How do we behave in a different way? And, and you create positivity. And I think the, the Gottman Institute was, was defining that you need a ratio of five positive interaction to one negative interaction, you know, at most, to, to actually create positivity in a team. So if, if the ratio is inverted, or even if you don't achieve that type of ratio, you are going to have frustration and negativity in the team. To create positivity, you need to reinforce that. So if you can remove toxin, it's actually very good. Um, the parallel in lean, I wouldn't necessarily put it on muda, but I would, it, I would put it on problems. Uh, lean takes problems as an opportunity to improve. So the idea is you don't shy away, you don't blame, you, you take a problem and as collectively you figure out how you're going to solve it. It's an opportunity to improve. So a problem is not a bad thing, a problem is a good thing. And once you turn that, that around like this, you can see how you can make progress in enterprises. And I think what, what, what is important to understand as well is that you know, change is difficult for anybody. And the bigger the change, the bigger the sort of cliff edge or, or the bigger mountain and edge you're creating. Um, and, and if you create an environment where people drive change every day, they think about change every day, they are much more receptive about change on a larger, larger scale. And, and I think... And you know, Orsk talks about the change model and change edges and how you get people over change edges. And the reality is change is always an edge. So, and if you don't have edges, then basically you're not going fast enough in a digital economy because you're coasting. So you need to, to challenge yourself. You need to find the next thing. You need to create those edges. And, and in Lean, I think, there was, uh, I mean, they de-edge with the problem solving, de-edges you know, those elements. Uh, but the idea is if people with Kaizen drive change every day, then the bigger change gets much easier to drive because people understand that. People are less resistant by nature. They are more open to a future we're building through change uh, than, than the past we, we would want to end on to. Right. And for, some just for people listening, KZN is, is an approach for ongoing improvement of a... Uh, yes, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's yeah. an approach. The, the essence of it is really about doing small changes that you can control uh, in small steps. Uh, and, and I think the, what, what we tend to... And we tend to codify that too much uh, and try and make change too big very often. And, and the, the, you know, some fundamentals around, you know, some, some people like senseis like uh, uh, Chihiro Nakao, uh, Taichi Ono, and so on, were, were quite keen to say that um, there's no money, there's no investment, there's none of that, only ingenuity. And as soon as you start driving investment and so on towards change, and, and Kaizen especially, uh, Kaizen, of course, when you have bigger change, you need that, but at the Kaizen level, 
it's about stimulating the ingenuity of people and the teams and, and finding those small things they can do uh, and, and, and they settle. So they, they, they identify something, they try it, it works, and then they embed it into the, the process, the culture, or whatever have you. And, and that's the fundamental of it. The rest is codification on top. And, and yes, that brings some tools that you may use, but you need to connect to that essence first. Right, and I thought that was fascinating, this idea that during Kazan, you, you, so there's no, you're not allowed to spend any money, you're not allowed to hire ex, extra people, um, you're not allowed to fire people, right? That's one of the principles. That, yes. Which, and, and that's a big problem with the lean tag. I mean, I saw it with Gavin Patterson, the BT CEO, who talks about, oh, yes, we've made all these lean changes and we've fired all these people. And you know, like, as soon as I saw that, I thought, God, you know, really, it's a, it's a real issue for people who, who are seeking yes. to, you know, evangelize, if you like, the, the lean, the broader lean message. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's where when you read those, those initial, you know, the, the, the Toyota people, um, it's, it's a fun, you do not get rid of people. The, the ingenuity needs to go as far as how are we going to unleash those people on new things to improve, new things to find, new innovation. And, you know, if you think companies, they have a ratio of, of, of cost to profit. Generally, it has to be positive. And generally it is. And if you can reduce the cost that you're doing things at by X, and you save some capacity, and you can use that capacity to invent new things, to save further cost, or actually to develop new innovation and, and grow the revenues in that case, you 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 upgrade your ratio. And you know, I was reading something the other day about Amazon. Amazon is reinvesting everything they do, reinvesting all the time. And that's why they've grown so big so quickly. Uh, and, and they apply that principle. I mean, they're probably, you know, there's a, a part of Amazon that's probably not that nice to be employed in, I guess. Uh, but yeah, that respect for employees seems to yeah. not particularly manifest certainly in that sort of work. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, uh, as an overall company, there's this principle that we are reinvesting all the time towards innovation and growing from that. And I think, you know, the companies that their main drive, and, and that's sometimes the problem, their main drive is cost reduction. They don't really have a strategy. The strategy should be about, okay, we, we're going to do better with less here, and what we free up, how are we going to employ those resources? How are we going to unleash new potential? But, and, but what, well, I suppose what's interesting when I hear that is that, that when, when we think about cost drives in, in corporations, it's often about how can I take X out of this budget line, right? It, it, it doesn't come from a, a fundamental philosophy of intelligent autonomous teams who embedded into their culture is a is a daily inquiry into how we can be intelligent uh, and and be innovative around improving the way we work absolutely right and you know i've, I've had an example like this that was blatant in um, in in some middle office back office in banks where the, the role there is to settle the trades. And, and settling the trades uh, is, is very often, you know, a lot of it is trade through processing, uh, but you have exceptions. And those exceptions are due to bad data entry, bad reconciliation of data, 
uh, new entities. I mean, plenty of things. A, a, a system that was down when when a batch that didn't arrive when you were trying to do things. It's plenty of reasons for it. And what you find out is that we're trying to improve the handling of exception and optimize the handling of exception. And we're trying to also lower the cost of that by uh, getting more sort of offshore resources dealing with this. But fundamentally, all that work is waste. We should be looking at eliminating exception, not optimizing the handling of them. And that should be a continuous work because we're not we're not managing, you know, things change, new regulations come in, you know, new front end come in, new trader came in, all those things create a sex exception. So we need to figure from the source of exceptions, how do we improve that continuously? And and when you get to that realization, and you you think, how can we do that? And you realize that the, the culture of cost control. Uh, has shaved to the bone the operational teams. So they have no bandwidth to find improvements, none. All they are, you know, they are completely overburdened by dealing with exception day in, day out. So they can't stop and think. On the other hand, you have that big, massive program that we made alongside that with a lot of consultants. And that big massive program, you know, is multi-million pound, will deliver in two or three years' time. And everybody, including the, the senior management, is cynical that we'll ever see anything coming out of it. So we are shaving the cost on one end with people that know where the problems are. And we're landing some externals working in a vacuum that will create a miracle solutions that nobody believes in. Where is the nonsense? Where is that paradox? How can people not see that? Right. And, and that's where the Kaizen <clears throat> principle, it's where, you know, when I said initially, you know, around the knowledge work, those people on the ground have knowledge of the problems. Let's work with those people to figure out what to fix. Let's give them some bandwidth to figure out what to fix. Let's evolve the systems to towards something better rather than you know sort of overburden those people and then create something that is extremely wasteful alongside it to solve all problems because the reality those programs are the biggest failure in IT all the time yeah and, and if a fraction of that was invested into the existing teams you would actually have technology that is continuously refactored and up to date you would have continuous improvements of the processes, you have more automation, and you wouldn't have every four or five years to ditch your system and, and start clean to rebuild the same type of system. You would be able to evolve the technology and modernize it along the way. But it takes a fundamental different approach where you don't bring people to deliver stuff to you, you work with your team and yourself to deliver a continuous improvement from the inside and recognize sometimes, okay, we need a bit of investment here because we're going to try cloud. We're going to try AI in cloud. We're and, and, and you structure your teams so that you have, you know, the teams that think a bit about, and, and the structure of the team is a difficult thing, but you need to have 
however you organize your team, some thinking about what's next. You need to have, and that's, that's the innovation, that's new technologies, new thinking, lateral thinking. You know, I remember we were talking some time back about adjacent part of the business, for instance. Yeah. Uh, exploring the opportunities of the present, all those things. So you need that. Then you need to have, once we find, once we materialize that, how do we monetize it? How do we harden it? How do we structure it? How do we operate it? And, and how do we flow from that emergence of new things that suddenly make sense and there's some legs and the customers are using it and it actually delivers value and it reduces whatever it is and land this in the organization and settle it. In. And then once it is landed, how do we operate it and how do we continuously find little things we can still do on that continuously and right. stimulate the teams on, on that. And I think that flow is very much the, the PST model of worldly maps. Uh, so PST is pioneers, settlers, town planners. And the idea that you know, there's different sort of objectives of the teams you know, to deliver. I'm not completely sure that we should look at it as an organization model. It may be fit for some organizations. Sometimes it's the same team that should sort of embed all, all those capabilities and all those level of thinking. But it's for sure, teams need to embed that level of thinking uh, about the, the innovation and discovery, about the exploitation and, and, and sort of industrialization, and, and finally, you know, the, the sort of running and, and optimization and continuous optimization simplification. That is a flow. It should be a flow. It shouldn't be, oh, we're going to get that system, let it sunset and, and break everything of it and make a mess of it. And then we rebuild another one on top because that is complete waste. Right, exactly. And yeah, yeah, uh, I do find that the way that a lot of large corporations work is very discontinuous, isn't it? It's like you, you run something into the ground until it's, you know, until it's failing and then you spin up a new change program and you hope you get something out of it or you, you acquire some, you know, there, there isn't a, a sort of respect for flow or much consciousness around flow. Is there, it doesn't, I mean, it's a word that's gaining more, gaining more currency now out of the agile movement, but it's certainly not something that's high in people's consciousnesses in businesses no. generally. In the, in the West, I think. Um, and, and I think, you know, IT, you know, people, a lot of people are starting to talk about flow now. And, and you know, arguably some of them, like Dan North and so on, were talking about flow a long time ago. Um, and I think we're warming up to it. And, you know, Lean was very much about flow. And, and people think, yeah, well, it's easy. It's a production chain. Of course, it's a flow. But IT is a flow as well. Uh, the difference is that there's a high level of viability because you want to mix innovation, you want to mix you know, IT as an element that you, know, you don't exactly know what you're going to deliver. You, know, you, you reinvent a bit every time based on what the user needs and so on. But there's also an element of flow that you want you know, uh, your, your delivery pipeline to be fast and, and, and so on and, and, and automated as much as possible. You want your security. Uh, to be always you know, of good standards. You want to, to also have you know, the use of sub patterns and, and reusing components in your organization. So a lot of those elements are, are more sort of uh, known and, and complicated or complex. And if you talk in, 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 
in Kinevin terms, and probably more in the ordered domain, and, and you're trying to achieve things in an unordered, complex domain. And I think IT is very much a balance of the two, and we tend to, to go all, all the way to complex now where we invent everything. And the reality, I don't think that's the case. I think you, you settle some of the stuff, uh, some patterns, some reuse, some components, microservices. You settle a lot of those things that once they are settled, you need to still think how you're going to improve on them. And, there's, yeah, and, and that unleashes your ability to focus on the complex stuff. And that's a cycle. That's a cycle of innovation and operational excellence. And one enables the other. And I, my, my reflection on, on reading, again, your excellent recommendation of Kazan forever in that book, and this idea that we res absolutely restrict to a minimum your, your uh, resources in order to improve your, your work situation. So no, yeah, like I said, no, no hiring, no firing, no you know, outside help, no money, no, com no computer, no automation, no. Just, and, and it feels like, it's almost like that's a training. It's like high altitude training. It's like we're going to overtrain you by giving you nothing and forcing you to innovate with what's around you. Yeah. And then that's, that creates this intelligent team that then yeah. when, when it's given more resources is better equipped um, to exploit those resources uh, in, you know, in, in other stages of, let's say, the product lifecycle. But I like how you say it. It's high-altitude training because it's not... You know, let's say you train for sport, or I remember the French team, the, the, the World Cup winning was trained in, in some ski resort or something in, in, in summer, just for the high altitude. And, and that's things that just get ingrained into you. You know, you may play football at high altitude, and you may learn, I mean, and, and get some techniques and tactics and so on about football, let's say. But where it really comes from is the essence of it that's in, in you. It's the high altitude thing. It's not something you train. Really. It's not a codified practice that is being you know, imposed upon you. It's uh, something that you experiment with and that is the emergence of learning. Okay? And, and I think you can see that within... Uh, within the team and the team, you know, the emergence of learning should be shared as well. That's why you work as a team and you create a learning organization like that. And, and it's fascinating how much, you know, when you talk about those things and, and you think how much of that stuff Toyota got right. It's amazing. And I was sitting not long ago about um, through a presentation from Google that were explaining the, 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 the outcome of their survey, the Aristotle project, which is really a survey about what makes successful team in Google. And I don't know if they took some clues, but you could see how much similarities there was. It's kind of a modern take on, on what Toyota discovered 50 years ago. Because it's about culture, you know, the fact that it's about ingenuity and so on is, Everybody is able to participate. Everybody is able to have a say. All the voices of the system count. Um, and, and it's finding innovation. It's, it's that culture and, and, and creating a safe environment that people can share it. Nobody is idiot. Nobody is stupid. Every ID, ID counts. And 
in, in Google, and I don't know Google close enough uh, to, to, to know everything in there, but from what, what was explained, it's very similar. Uh, it's all about that culture and, and, and that safety net, the safety environment that you know, people opinion count, the fact that they have some time and, and if they want to invest some time on anything, you know, it's, it's a diversity of thinking that they are promoting. Uh, and and the time to think about innovation, the time about developing some stuff uh, in Google that is completely out there, and and they got free reign on that. And I think <clears throat> all this is is the same type of core culture. Right. It's about knowledge work, and it's about stimulating knowledge worker uh, to to find new ideas, new paths, new ways of improving uh, and innovating. And, and that requires a very, very different leadership. Yeah, and I think, I mean, because when I speak to the complexity thinkers uh, about who, who reject the idea of systems thinking, I think that, and this is I'm sort of thinking on the fly here, I think that the version of systems thinking that they reject is this idea that the manager or the leader can stand outside of this system, somehow analyze it and identify its problems and then inject into it you know solutions or suggestions or blueprints for, for this you know quote system to follow um but but the sort of version of systems thinking that i think that is um, compatible with the complexity thinking which is something i'm wrestling with now is this idea that it, we we think of it the system to the extent that there's this individuals in a team who are relating to each other and stuff is emerging from that quote system or but, but really it's just that population of of human beings who are interacting and patterns are being identified by the mm -hmm. individuals within it right and opportunities are being identified right uh, and people are making suggestions or people are declaring an intent and people are responding to that intent that way of looking at the world as I, at least as i see it is is entirely consistent with the, with the complexity perspective. Yes, and <clears throat> I'm, I'm also looking at the viable system model. Uh, and um, actually next week I'm, I'm uh, on the retreat with uh, Kinevin and uh, Cognitive Edge. So I'm very interested to see how those three, uh, three things work together. And, and so far, I think, the viable system model has interesting things because it highlights some patterns around as an overall organization functions. And it identifies basically the, the team constructs, so the, what in systemic coaching you call systems. Um, and, and the flow, and, and you can sort of visualize the structure of the organization in relation to its environment and the flow in it. And that already tells you is there something that just doesn't really add up in there? Is there something that, you know, there's too much up and down the hierarchy to get anything done? So that gives you a visual way, and, and I think it's very useful for that. Uh, then it gives you some, some sort of, are you overlay the management layers? Are you, you create the monitoring, the reporting, all those sort of things. But one element I'm finding, and that's, I'm discussing that as well with other uh, systemic coach that, that are uh, involved with, with system thinking as well. Um, <clears throat> what we're finding is there's a dimension where you say, oh, well, the monitoring and all this stops here. 
and, and we need to define how this bubble of a system here, a team system, is intelligent. And what doesn't need to come out of it? What needs to be actually retained in it so that um, they make the decisions, they're autonomous. And I think we have something like this, and that makes it compatible with complexity thinking, where you know, everything is emergent, and we need to let it emerge. And I think we can, we can figure out the whole thing works. I think all of those things are actually useful. Um, and, and, but we need to put them at work together. And, and, and you know, there's not that many that have done that out there. It's, it's very experimental still. Uh, but what could go wrong? It's only, <laughs> you know, it's only leveraging team. I think the thing that can go wrong is really how the management is comfortable and the leadership is comfortable with this. And, and of course, initially it won't work as, as you know, perfect as you, you would like it to. But that's where you need to persist. That's where you need to think, well, what's the, you know, how are we going to enable that? And, okay, those guys didn't get it and they didn't pan out good. Okay, let's analyze from that. Let's, let's welcome that problem. And let's analyze with the team, not, not ourselves on the side, but with the team, you know, what, what could we have done better? Where did we trip? And, and I think it's this sort of cycle of, uh, and, and as you start doing that, the, 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 the leader is here to stimulate, sometimes he's here to poke, just to, to say, that doesn't make sense, but always in a way that the team sort of, you know, has this emergence, new thinking and, and experiments. And, you know, with experiments, you also need to grow comfortable that 50% should fail. Otherwise, you, you're trying safe experiments for the, the namesake of them. Uh, so you need to, but you need to try experiments that 100% allow you to learn. And you need to make them small enough. And very often people don't, you know, they say they experiment because it's a fashionable word. But it's not really experiment. Experimentation should have at least two or three options that you're trying in parallel so that you don't in include your own bias to say, I want that thing to work, my experiment to work. You need to, and that's where complexity sort of comes into play is, you know, you try and remove that bias as much as possible. So how do you get some experiments that are genuinely concurrent and, and, and inform your decision cycle uh, with the teams? I think it is where the management needs to create that zone where they stimulate it. You know, it's not just cuddly things. Uh, it's, it's, the zone is, okay, it's fine to, to fail. We're going to learn. What are we going to learn? What are we learning? And, and creating that sort of things, it's, I think there is a place for leadership and it's a strong place for leadership. Um, that is stimulating the system that is thinking, uh, that is poking, that is challenging the system and letting the system sort of develop itself as an intelligent team to find the answers and and at some point you have an intelligent and resilient team by the way right. because and, if and, one member of the team goes the rest carries on and it sounds like one that's you know that has fun i mean that's interesting as well reading the case yes. of forever book is that the, the the feedback from a lot of people who've been involved in these very immersive 
Kaizen events, you know, report how much fun they had. You know, experiment Because often I think when I introduce this idea of experiments, oh, and you must remember that it's, it's got to be okay to fail. I think a lot, you know, just drape. Oh God, have I got to sort of get up to work every day and fail? I mean, is that what it, is that what you're telling me? And it, and it sounds so heavy, but yet the reality is that if we can think of it more as sort of this, you know, try this, try that. You know, it's fun. Um, you get to be creative and use your imagination. Then you know, that's a different way of framing it. And what's interesting, yeah, reading case said, is that that seems to be the experience of people. And and it has to be combined with a learning organization. Because you need to be able to communicate and say, we tried that, it didn't work. We tried this, it didn't work again. We tried this, and now we're getting somewhere. And people need to be comfortable to say it was a learning. So if it was a learning, you need to share it so no, you know, somebody else doesn't fail, I mean, do the same. Um, so that all those things, how you tally them all together, is a very difficult formula to achieve. Yeah. And, and also, that I think the other preconception perhaps people have about this is I, I mentioned, you know, we might want to, to this particular client and this particular team, um, I mentioned about, you know, lean, lean thinking and so on. And their response was, oh, God, you know, isn't that that, that sort of constant um, striving for perfectionism? Isn't that why they're all killing themselves in Japan? And, you know, there's such high suicide rates. It's because they're, they're driven, you know, it's almost like this, this image of, you know, teams being whipped by a manager to be perfect every day. Well, I, I need to visit Japan uh, to, to see whether that is happening or not. I doubt it. Uh, but there's, in, one of the big pillars is respect for people. But respect for people you know, goes both ways, first of all. Uh, but it's also you know, something to respect for the intelligence. It's not just being polite and, and serving the teas, you see, it's not it's not fake respect. It's it's respecting that you're intelligent, you're grown up, and and you're here to deliver value for the company, and uh, and and I'm going to help you, but I have expectations from you. Uh, and and the leadership has to be strong. You know, when you read Chihiro Natkao, there's a bit of tough love there. I know, and, and sometimes with my, with my son, I find that as well. It's like, well, you want them to do well at school. You want them to do well in life. And if you put them under cotton wool everywhere, that, that doesn't achieve the, the, the overall objective. And sometimes, you know, you need to be a bit, a bit stronger on those things. I've, um, I've had also the, 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 the big opportunity. I, I visited the Porsche factory and, and, and was connected with some people at Porsche. Porsche has a fantastic story uh, because they, they were going bankrupt in the 90s. And the story has it that they changed the CEO that, that was blaming the financial crisis back then. And they brought a new CEO that thought, we need to fix production. And, and he pretty much begged Japanese consultant, always Chihiro Nakao, actually, uh, to come and help. And, and the Japanese refused initially because they saw that as being uh, uh, disloyal to their car business, which is very interesting in terms of respect, right? Um, and he, he managed to ask them several times, and apparently they couldn't refuse, and also convince them that Porsche was not competitive with the Japanese industry. So they accepted to help. And 
when when they help, I mean, and then it's a fantastic story how they turned around, and today they're the most profitable car maker in the world, and they fix production, and and that fixing of the production they enable then, you know, the the first SUV, the Cayenne, I mean, one of the first premium SUV, but certainly the first sports car brand doing a SUV, and today it's about thirty percent of the sales, and with the Macan, most of the sales at Porsche were the Cayenne, the Macan, really. And so that basically saved them. Uh, and, and that was because they fixed production, they recovered on that, and then they were able to apply their thinking to innovation and new product lines and develop from that. And you know, talking to, to the people from Porsche, one person was asking, how do you incentivize employees to actually dr drive improvements and think about improvements? And the guy was completely stunned, thinking, but that's their job. And that's the nice part of their job. So they're not whipped into shape. This is actually stimulating them. And you don't need to ask, you know, when people are, are allowed to think, where people are allowed to, to make a difference and things happen like this, suddenly you unleash potential. And, and the automotive industry has certainly, you know, there are, very, there are a lot of differences with IT, but the leadership elements are very similar. And the size of transformation between, you know, automotive organization and, and, and IT organ or, 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 or corporations relying on IT, the scale of transformation is about the same and the culture is very much similar. So I think it's fascinating to to go back to to those to understanding the culture change that happens, uh, and and figuring out what can we learn from that, and it's very visual as well. So it, it's 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 very interesting. And I've done that uh, with some teams. Uh, I had some teams, and I was called completely an heretic, uh, heretic sorry, heretic, um, by saying, "Oh, we're going to look at waste in IT." People are like, what are you talking about? We're all about creating innovation. But, well, <clears throat> we see because we, we were not you know, in a position. We were not doing the product management or anything like that. So we had little to say about, uh, about innovation. But we looked at waste. And, and you realize that this colossal waste in, in the way of, of delivering IT and even organizing the teams. You could organize so much bigger and better and, 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 and find ways of, of saving quite a bit. But, and, and what I realized is you do not measure waste. Waste is something that is not really measurable. You just assess it. And what I realized as well is that my teams suddenly had a currency in which they could express an improvement they could make. And the attitude completely changed. And the teams were able uh, to actually express, oh, we could do this, we could do that. Whereas before, they wouldn't. They would just carry on doing the same thing. And, and I had that moment to think, wow, you know, that, that is the essence of it. That is not about waste. It's not about measuring this. It's not about cutting you know, cost and so on. It's about enabling the team to have a critical thinking and giving them that voice so that they drive continuous improvement. 
and that very much gets started. And it was interesting, you know, how I was going into their office and you could see that we, we were playing with the waste snake and the investment ladders and stuff like that, so snake and ladders. Um, and they were drawing that on their board and they were noting things. And, and, and it was fascinating to see the different attitudes that we drove. And that, that's what it was really about in the end. And when I left those teams, you know, I, I keep in touch with some of them. And, and I find it interesting that some people are telling me, well, we don't have somebody now that, that pushes us. We don't have somebody that is just thinking differently and, and you know, sort of rallying us to, to try those things. And, and, and somehow, you know, I was a bit thinking, oh, I could have done this better and this better and this better when I left. But then it left me thinking, there may be one thing I've done right here. And, and that's, that's the thing I, I enjoyed. And, and I think there's so much to, to dig into you know, that, those cultural elements and, and you know, the systemic management from it and uh, engineering culture and producing quality and, and the Kaizen and continuous improvement and then giving them the right strategic input and, and, uh, and, and by coordinating the strategy deployment, being able to drive from intent and taking those teams as intelligent and sharing things with them like that. You can, you can drive a very enjoyable working atmosphere where the teams are, are focused towards the goals, focused toward outcomes, uh, and able to make a difference and feeling like it. And that is, that is a magical moment when you reach it. I, I won't claim that I've achieved that, uh, but I'd like to think that I was able to, to do a little bit of that. Right, but that's also pointed to something that uh, it's mentioned in Case and Forever is this this problem with bringing external help. <laughs> and I say this as a consultant who makes my living providing external help. Help, but there is potentially a problem with with people coming in, providing that stimulation, um, potentially providing some kind of wrapper around the team to enable them to operate differently. And then they go and like quickly uh, entropy sets in and the, and the teams go back to, to, to old behaviors. I mean, I'm sure that's very common when companies hire coaches for short-term engagements or for a temporary, you know, for a short, short amount of time. The thing is companies do hire coaches to stand in between the leadership and the team and tell people what they should do. That's not coaching. What, what you want, and that's the big, and I'm publishing a white paper on that at the moment, I think the big shift that we should see in the industry, because there's a lot of that going on. There's an entire structure in organization where you have the head of the ways of working. Well, that should be the normal management, shouldn't it? The head of digital, well, everybody should care about digital. So how do you get the normal structure of the organization to drive continuous improvement, to drive agility, to drive new ways of working, uh, to drive you know, digital thinking. Are we going to digitalize you know, our operations? Are we going to simplify things for customers? And are we going to innovate with the capacity we, we, we save? And all those things, it's the role of a traditional leadership to do that. Why are we creating entire structure alongside that that becomes self-aware somehow? 
and, and, and becomes vested in pushing an agenda and a codification that is not delivering business value. And I think, I think the industry is at this chasm where so much of that has been going on that it's a own bubble. And that bubble, I wonder when it's going to burst. Because it, it starts looking like a Ponzi scheme to me. <laughs> right. And you know, you can think, and I'm actually thinking about writing something on that. You know, if you think about that bubble bursting like a financial crisis, what would that look like? And and what's you know what would be the triggers and so on? But what's emerging? Interesting thing. What would be emerging from that? Because we still need to change. We still need to be more digital. You know, the leadership in organization still you know will need to take the reins if that bubble bursts. Who is going to take the reins? It's the existing leadership, and they need help. They need help to recalibrate their thinking. They need help to actually start managing on a cadence with their team and start emerging things for their team. And all we talked about around Kaizen, all those things they need help with. But I think the fundamental thing is the coach needs to sit alongside that, not in the middle of it. The coach is a facilitator of that relationship between the leadership and the teams. It's not the intermediary of that relationship, because otherwise it becomes a semi-manager. And the coach needs to be outside of that system. And then you need to think in terms of the kata. You know, Toyota kata is, is that, that process where you have a starting condition and a desire and state, sometimes quite a stretch goal, and, and you go through those steps. And when the team is self-sufficient about carrying on on that journey, the coach is redundant. But that means the coach needs to be built to be redundant to start with. The coach needs to come in and come out. They shouldn't be there all the time because they become vested into the system of work. And it's incredible out there when you try and you know, get some work, how many people want you to come full-time to take care of the thing? They don't want somebody part-time. But that's part right. of the problem. Right. So it, it sounds to me, as I'm hearing you there, is that the, the coach can only be successful if they found some way for the team or leaders within the team or the team itself or however it occurs to continue to stimulate the team around this idea. To, yeah, to take charge of themselves, to take ownership for their own innovation, to continue to, to change how they operate. And that you cannot force on them. That they will only move as fast as they can move. And you need to accept that. And at, st at the start, you know, it, it's, there's some inertia. You need to accept that. But trying to force it on them, suddenly you become the one that drives that for everybody. You start having a vested agenda. And that in itself is not sustainable. You started in a position that is not sustainable. So how will it carry on working? No way. And I think the, the, the whole industry needs, needs a reboot because we, we are realizing, and there's a lot of safe implementations and so on out there that are realizing that, yeah, we've we done that. So what? What does that deliver to the business? Nothing. We're working in a slightly different way, uh, but it doesn't change anything. And, and the thing that's not, safe is the scale that framework, which is a sort of blueprint for how you. I don't understand. Yeah, 
pick up on then. There's plenty of agile, uh, agile frameworks. The other ones are a bit more lightweight uh, and more of an extension of co coordinating multiple scrum teams, really. But SAFE is, is providing an entire sort of organization structure and so on. So it's going a bit, bit further with, with it. Uh, hence why everybody's picking up on them all the time, uh, because they're the ones sticking out the most. Um, and I think you know, it's a useful input and maybe a useful transition as well. But ultimately, it is down to creating that culture in the management of, of driving the strategy, driving outcomes, or digital in a way that the team are participating in that and, and allowing things to emerge from the team in terms of improvements, uh, in terms of new innovation and so on, and structuring the organization to enable that. And at the center of all this is flow. It's flow of where we want to get to, uh, how are we going to organize ourselves for that, and it's flow about understanding our impediments and how we're going to continuously resolve them. And, mm -hmm. and that requires a, a much tighter relationship between the leadership that is responsible for the system of work and the teams that are responsible for bringing, emerging the new thinking and, and being stimulated at that. And I think it does require coaching. It does require help, uh, but a very different help than, than can be found in the industry. And that's where consulting comes back. <laughs> where we started also. Maybe that's a, a, a great way to start to, to close out the conversation. Um, one thing I like to ask all of all my guests uh, uh, is, uh, is to you, Philippe, what does it mean to be human? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, and I've been you know, listening to a few podcasts and said, how can I answer that question? And I'm struggling, to be honest, because I think all I'm talking about is being human. There's nothing else. And, and what I say very often is, and, and what we see in the market and in the industry is, when we talk about digital, it is not about technology, or it is a bit about technology. It's not really about processes or a bit about it. It's fundamentally about human but at a profound level. It's, it's about human, how we organize the place of work is about humans. Whether it's gonna work or not, it's about humans. It's about creating this sort of context and emotions where that's gonna work. And it's human, it's not computers, it's not processes. And when we even talking, taking a step much further out, when we're talking about AI and stuff like that, replacing people, that would be a very sad company to be working for. Because essentially it's saying that we're going to replace uh, people with robots, meaning that their work is very much robotic and we're not finding any way to be more creative than that. And I think if you think organizations, you know, with all the firepower you can imagine around AI and so on, and we've, we've seen that in, uh, you know, in sort of high-frequency trading and so on. You know, you have all the firepower. You, you move as closely as possible to the exchange and so on. So, but everybody is on the same level, same firepower, same AI, same data. What's going to make the difference? What's going to make, and, and I admire, you know, Steve Jobs for bringing the iPod. I admire Steve Jobs for bringing the iPad because everybody was thinking by that, that's never going to work. And there was a stigma of the Newton and so on already. And that didn't work. That was the wrong time for it. But he brought those things. And then he's the biggest genius. 
And there was no data points, or all the data points will be pointing out that this was not going to work. Nobody, you know, people wanted the web computer. They didn't want a tablet that was a big phone. And we know the success of that since. So I think with all the technology that can exist, the difference is always going to be made between a human that creates a new idea and a human that appreciates the differentiation of that new idea. The rest underneath is only firepower. And, and, and that differentiation will stimulate a lot more creativity. So that's why we need to work on the intelligence of teams. That's why we need to explore. That's why a lot of the things Dave Snowden is saying is actually relevant. Is because we need to develop the cognitive behaviors and, and the functioning of teams and so on to stand above all this, not to replace people. Yes, we will replace robotic roles with that, and we should create an equal number, or if not a higher number of roles with new unleashed potential. We're only pushing the goalpost further. And that potential is a human potential. I'm convinced of it. So I think that's beautiful. beautiful. Still human first, yes. Okay, thank you so much. And so there was a bunch of references, I know, for people who are maybe less familiar with the sort of agile space. I, I get there's a lot of um, references to external sources, so I'll, I'll definitely put those in the description for, for the show. Uh, just remains for me to thank you once again. Uh, brilliant conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, I hope it's been for our audience also. So uh, have, a, have a great day and thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.